Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I am Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist, and that's all I'm going to say tonight. How are you, Laura? <laughs> I'm great, and I was so glad to hear that you have electricity, too, since lots of our city is Without dark. power. I quite, yeah, I don't guess quite dark yet because of our storms we had last evening. A huge, huge uh, winds of like 60 to 70 miles per hour, and because of that, school is delayed opening tomorrow that I'm I'm sure lots of students and maybe even some teachers are happy about that, that they get one more day of summer. Yeah, I doubt too many parents are thrilled, but oh well. I know. I heard there were 48 uh, Jefferson County schools without power. That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, they don't really have a choice. Yeah, it may take more than a day to get that going. Mm-hmm. Well, and I assume assume it's the same storm that hit Indianapolis. Did you hear about that? I the did. The fair, that concert, that was horrible. Yeah, that's terrible. People, five people, four people were killed yesterday, and then one more person died mm. from the injuries. I know, that's terrible. Did you know anybody there at the Indiana State Fair? Well, you know, I don't know that I did. Laura, who's now home from Spain, yay! Was yay! Sure she did because so many of her friends are from Indianapolis that... Yeah, heard anything yet? I had some Facebook friends that had planned to go, but at the last minute did not because they saw the weather forecast. Oh, so that was good for them that they decided not to go. So we'll we'll be praying for those families because that's terrible to go to what you think will be a fun event and have such a tragedy mm-hmm. yeah. happen. We've had that happen in Shelbyville this last weekend when a, a prominent uh, preschool assistant was on her way home from vacation and was killed in a car accident, she and one of her children. Isn't that oh, terrible? Yeah. I know, such tragedy. All right, anyway. Well, now that we're on such a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, tonight is Sunday, August 14th. This is show number 124, and we are doing part two of the stages of play. We started last week talking about play, and tonight we hope we can finish this up. I do have some announcements, though. I was supposed to do that first, but I went back and listened to some old shows of ours trying to find the other the first time we did this topic, and I liked it better when I announced what the show topic is and the title and the date right at the beginning, and I haven't, I've haven't, i gotten away from that lately, so I'm going to start doing that again. I, I don't know how long that will last, Kate. Maybe in a week or two when I forget about it again, you can say, you're supposed to give the title of the show and the date, because I do think it helps people if they're listening to decide if they've heard that particular show before. Right. So Not anyway. that there are any two are really actually the same, because, you know, it is stream of consciousness, so it depends what's on our mind that moment. So, anyway, we never quite know where they'll end. We know where they'll start. We're just not sure where they end. Well, and I really couldn't even find the first show where we talked about this. I listened to the beginnings and the middles of lots of shows, and one show, and I'd forgotten all about this, you were sick right before you came on the air. <laughs> Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, you were so sick. I said, are you okay? And you said, no, I'm nauseated. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You don't want to go back and listen to that one. (laughs) I don't want to go back and listen to any of them, so that's okay. (laughs) 
you were so sick, though, and I think that you got sick just right before it, and then you couldn't, you didn't have time to call me and say, hey, I'm not going to be able to do the show. Oh, I did it, huh? You did it. You were a trooper. Uh, Johnny and I, I was, it was on speaker, we were kind of giggling, going, oh, no. <laughs> and then I said, oh, I remember this now. She couldn't. It happened just right before the show. So anyway. Oh, man, I'd forgotten I'm, about that. I know, I had too. I'm so glad you're feeling better tonight. I am. I'm just fine. Good. All right, these announcements before we get rolling. Uh, I'll be in West Virginia in Charleston on September 15th, and you can register online for that conference date at my website at teachmetotalk.com. And then we're still finalizing locations for Dallas, but that date for sure well, almost for sure, is Wednesday, October 19th, and then on Friday, October 21st, I'll be in Shreveport, and you can, again, get information, I hope, uh, by Tuesday or Wednesday on the website for those, and if you're really anxious about that and want to uh, email me to get further details before I get it up on the website, my email is laura at teachmetotalk.com. And then one more thing that I've been doing that I've gotten some emails about is talking about what links I've put on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page. And this weekend, or the last day or two, really leads into what we're going to talk about tonight with the importance of play. And the link is actually about play in preschoolers and how using games um, kind of following directions like Simon Says or other more circle time games is linked to a real uh, gain in self-regulation. And then it, those gains are responsible for four to six-month gains in literacy and math skills in those early preschool and kindergarten age children. So take a look oh. at that study. I know it was really, really interesting, but doesn't it make sense that kids who can listen and follow instructions and uh, they're self-regulated enough to do what the adult says, they don't have to be, again, uh, they're following adult-directed activities, they're, they're self they're not so isolated and they're 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 able to participate without wanting to do their own thing. Wouldn't it make sense that those children would be ahead academically? Yes, definitely. Yeah, and so that study I thought was great and it's such good um evidence based practice for our friends who are hearing that term in lots of states and organizations that are emphasizing that, you know, that's a, a great study to be able to say that the reason that circle time is important or that you're doing these little peer games or group therapy and working on these kinds of things is because of the gains that they've noted in those kinds of studies. And because of that, I've talked about that circle time book that I've wanted to do for a long time for group programs since before all of this started with the website and Speaking at conferences, that was my best professional experience when I ran that playgroup program. So I'm going to write all those things down in kind of a homework format and do a little circle time book. And so I hope that's out by the end of the year. And I know I had talked about that previously. And sometimes my plans get a little derailed. But I have recommitted to uh, getting that done because I think it will be exciting and a great tool for therapists to use in, in that kind of setting. So I wanted to just go ahead, and now that I've mentioned it on the show, I'll start to get emails about it, and that will make me even more determined to finish the project. So I wanted to share that, too. 
You're funny how you do that. That then when she hears about it, she's like, "Oh, I have to do it. I said it on air now." <laughs> I know that's when I firmly made a commitment. Johnny and I were just joking. We were having a quote unquote board meeting for TeachMeToTalk.com, and he said, "You should say it on the show about your Circle Time book because if you'll say it, you'll do it." So. Right. There it is. Yeah, the gauntlet has been thrown. I have to oh, do it. So. Boy. I know. Oh, there we wow. go. All right. Let's talk about or continue talking about those stages in play that we started talking about last week. Well, on last week's show, we spent a long time reviewing the cognitive prerequisites and those early play skills that we see in typically developing children in the second half of their first year by the time they turn one. And we talked about object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. How those three skills are so critical and how we can analyze a child's play and and facilitate those skills in play and how children must absolutely positively have met those cognitive milestones before they are developmentally ready to start to learn what words mean and eventually to talk. So we talked about that last week. And then now we're moving into stages of play. And I think last week we started talking about the first phase, which is or kind of basic play skills and what those steps would be in that early kind of play. And we talked about that first step of taking apart and putting things together. And we gave some instances of that, like, pulling pop beads apart before a child would be able to put those together or assemble those on his own. We talked about how sometimes for a child at this phase of play, and again, this is very, very early when you have maybe puzzles that just have perhaps those earliest, like Melissa and Doug puzzles with those wooden knobs that are the pieces are pretty big, instead of having a child see the pieces and put those in first, our first step would be that the child would actually take the pieces out of the puzzle. And that's where we would start with that kind of play, is them knowing how to um, take it apart and then put it back together once they've seen the assembled uh, whole, instead of depending on them to know how to put it together without having seen that model. Does that make sense? Am I saying that in a way that you think people can understand that? I think so. We. Um, encourage them to remove them before we give them the opportunity to put them in. Right, so they know how it looks. And I talked about, just from personal experience, kids who don't seem to understand a simple toy like potato heads. If you'll start with assembling the face pieces, have the hat on, the eyes and nose, mouth, ears, you know, if you want to add arms, shoes, whatever, but have those pieces in first and then let them, let a kid pull them out and then put them back in. And that seems to help a child understand the purpose of that play, and then they're not so fixated on other things that our little friends might get fixated on and not, not know um, how they're supposed to play with a toy. So that would be a good example of starting at the beginning when we're targeting play, even with a new toy, with letting them disassemble it first and then put it back together. And and that makes a lot of sense, too. And it, even that's how I learn. I like to see the whole process already created or the whole product before I'm ever able to think, now, how do I do this? I have a terrible time trying to put toys together on my own. You know, my <laughs> thank goodness, 
all those Christmas Eves, Johnny was able to do that because I, I have a terrible time at looking at a set of instructions and just putting something together when I don't have even a picture to see how it's supposed to look at the end. Right. You're probably better at that than me. I think you have better visual skills than I do that way. I don't know. I can usually, if I have a picture, I'm fine. Without a picture, I'd probably be in trouble. See, that's what I mean. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to know what it's supposed to look like before I can start to build it. Right. So our little friends certainly are that way too, especially our friends that have had developmental delays. So that's something to remember um, for a mom or for a therapist. I think we have more and more therapists that listen to our shows. Uh, for really specific uh, information that they can use in their therapy session. So that would be a good recommendation. Have your toy assembled and let the kid take it apart before you start having them put it together. The second step in this really basic play level is for a child to be able to put in or put on. And at this level of play, the child puts two different items together in a simple combination, such as placing one item into a different item or putting one item on top of another item. And we talked about last week, what's, that's why the fascination with putting things in and taking them out, that really, that, um, you know, putting in, dumping out, putting in, dumping out, that takes up a lot of time in a typically developing baby's play when they first start to do the container play. And our little friends that even may be two and older, if they're not at this cognitive level, you can still do some things with container play that you may not think about. And, again, these would be for our more significantly impaired or delayed friends where you would have to start play at this level. But just that whole process of handling those objects and making new combinations and figuring out which items relate to each other is really, really important for um, cognitive development there. And so that would be the next step that a child would do is that real, those really simple combinations put in or put on. And is that where we stopped last week? I'm not 100% sure, Laura. That sounds about right. We didn't make it all that far. I know that. Yeah. But, yeah, and so I'm not going to talk about that because I really think we, we reviewed that. And so if this is if you didn't listen to last week's show, you may want to go back and listen to it so that you'll understand where we are. The next step in this very basic level of play would be pretending to eat. And my instructions here say at this play step, the child uses an external object to take an action which is directed at him or her, which would be such as putting on a hat, combing hair, or eating play food. And maybe we did talk about this one because we talked about baby dolls, right? I think and we using, did, yeah. Yeah, I think we did too, and I think this is where we left off. And using accessories and having things available so that a child can use uh, functional objects in this way. And that would be um, if you've never seen a child even start to use objects functionally. Sometimes we have, and I think we talked about this last week, our friends who aren't self-feeders, and then we pretend to feed baby dolls in play, and all of a sudden they, their moms report the next week, oh, my goodness, he used the spoon. He's learned how to feed himself. And usually that happens first <laughs> with children, but for our little delayed friends, sometimes even using this kind of object in play really can be the predecessor for them making gains in their self-help skills because you're using those kinds of objects 
um, in your therapy session and you're you're introducing play that would include using some of those objects. I love to do this kind of play, and I use it when a kid is ready, when he's met those milestones that we talked about last week, when I think that he's getting to that 12-month developmental level, 15-month developmental level, this is where you start to introduce that really, really early, very basic pretend play with those functional um, functional objects. And I think baby dolls are the first thing I always do that with. But if you have a kid that's not into dolls, you can do it with everything. And, Kate, I know you've joked before about even using Thomas the Train to do oh, yeah. some of these things. Yeah. <laughs> what other kinds of things do you use? when you're working on this kind of play? Well, I have to say one of my first go-to things, even really before Baby Dolls, is the cookie monster that, you know, that that you have and I have. Right. They're very hard to find, so I hate to go on about the cool toy, but it's one of my all-time favorites, just this plush kind of, I always call it puff-a-lump, which really tells you how old I am. But anyway, (laughs) um, and you can stick the the cookie in his mouth and and you... Well, I always shake them as part of the routine, and then it ends up in his backpack. And I do, um, I have a hat that I've used on that, and then we always feed him cookies, and I have bottles, and I have a banana, and other assorted things. And I get kids, I think because that's more, you kind of, it's not a puppet, but I hold it as though it might be a puppet, and I kind of move his mouth and say, I want cookies, and I'm not, you know, I do my weird cookie <laughs> voice. And, um, they, you know, there's just something so funny and social and goofy about it that kids who aren't even really at a level where they're going to really attend to a baby doll, that gets them kind of on a more social level. And so I always kind of introduce yes. all of those, the things that I can think to do with it anyway, with Cookie before. And once I see, oh, he's really starting to like that with the Cookie, then pretty quickly I'll bring in the baby dolls in a couple of sessions. And normally... If you can get them with the cookie, you know, in a very short time, you can get them with the baby doll. But So that's one of my definitely early on love to see what I can get and how much they understand and how long they'll play it. And I will say kids who are not particularly social at all that we're still really struggling or I'm still struggling to establish a social routine or relationship with them, cookie is my go-to Let's see if I can get them to laugh with this. And normally, yeah. I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's because you've gotten really deliberate about you know what you're going to say, and you know what you're going to do, and your experience with that has told you, okay, this is a winner when I do this silly voice. Uh-huh. You know, and you probably do, and we talk about verbal routines all the time, and I talk about that a lot in my conferences, and I bet you do about the same thing with Cookie Monster every single time based on your experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's predictable. Mm -hmm. And so I bet you have kids that start to do when they see Cookie Monster. (laughs) If you've done it several weeks in a row, they remember that. Uh-huh. And we'll start to imitate some of those early exclamatory words or play words or whatever you want to call it because you've done such a good job of being repetitive and being persistent and um, really, really predictable. Yeah, I use that toy a lot with that. Another thing that I do is if I listen to what mom says 
the kid likes to eat, and if I have, you know, I own a lot of plastic pretend food. Yeah, <laughs> And really? I'll dig through my big bag and try, if I know that he likes apples, if you said banana, I always use a plastic banana. We always, of course, use Cookie with Cookie Monster. I have cheese, I have crackers, I have chicken nuggets, I have hot dogs, anything that mom says that the kid really, really likes. And I've had r- good luck getting a kid to imitate that food name, and then mom will always come back a week or two later and say, he said it again when we were eating. I couldn't believe it. And they get really excited about that. So that's one way to work in those really functional food words um, into play, especially if you're not, you know, we can't always, I'm not going to fix a hot dog while I'm there most of the time, even if a kid really, really likes to eat that. So it's a way to work on um favorite food names with Cookie Monster. I don't have a hat with mine, though. That's a great idea to go ahead and get a hat and use those kinds of accessories. I ended up with a vinyl little baseball cap that must have gone with a baby dollar. I may have gotten it at Ben Franklin, come to think of it, a couple bucks. It's cute and it's indestructible. And then I always kind of, if I still have them and they're with me and it's going well, I a lot of times do kind of a little peek-a-boo game with the hat. That's and it has cute. a little place in the back where you can kind of hold, it has like the stretchy part like a real baseball hat sometimes has. Uh-huh. So you can my point is you can hold it on there like hold it in the back. Yeah. And I'll say where'd he go? Where's his eyes? Oh, you know, no. Go on yeah. about that and then poof. And so again, a lot of times I do that with kids who <sighs> social skills are really really difficult and we're still yeah. really trying to establish those. And yeah. sometimes they will engage in a game of peekaboo better with Cookie than they will with me. So that's why right. yeah. I think out of necessity I decided that hat is a good little feature to have with the Cookie Monster so that, you know, they'll try and lift it up and then I always do the real startling, boo, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> that's how I say it too. Ben Franklin, $2. <laughs> I think it was a good $2, yeah. I'm going to do yeah. that this week. or di- I don't think I have a baby doll hat that would be big enough for Cookie Monster, and I bet those hats are for use on those little stuffed bears and things, right? right? I think that's yeah. like Build-A-Bear kind of stuff that right. they sell at craft uh-huh. stores, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. Thank you. That's my tidbit for the day. Oh, you are so welcome. My (laughs) nugget of gold from the show. I'm going to get that. That's a great idea, though. That's a really, really good idea. And you're exactly right about sometimes kids who care nothing about playing with those dolls yet, you could get them using that kind of toy first. Um, I've gotten emails from a couple of people telling me that there's a newer version of Cookie Monster out that they really? thought was the same, but it's not. Oh. It's oh. the and I had this Cookie Monster a long time ago. I think it was out when Macy was a toddler, but it's um, let's see, it's one of those talking ones, and um. it has a red ribbon with the cookie attached. Do you remember seeing that one yes. a long time ago, yes. like yes. late nineties? And it's cute, and I used it, but the the reason, and I would use it again if you don't have the toy that Kate and I are talking about, but I really like the our version of that because it has the way for the food to really be, Cookie Monster really eats it. It goes in his mouth and then comes out his backpack in the back. And we've talked about lots of times on the show how you've modified other toys Right. To look like that, so that that, and that's a cool function. And talk about object permanence, boy. When you have a kid who really, you'll know if a kid has truly mastered that in a play 
routine once you show them that the food comes out the back because as soon as they put it in, they're flipping Cookie Monster around to look in his backpack and see if the next thing that you put in his mouth has magically appeared in the backpack too. So it's it's a winner. But you could still use that newer Cookie Monster to um, do lots of this kind of play that we're talking about. The other thing that we have mentioned in the past several weeks that I keep perseverating on is that darn little dog from Walgreens. You could do lots of... (laughs) By the way, mine has officially malfunctioned right along with yours. Now he barks, but he doesn't walk. Oh, but you know what I did this week? I really just shook it and messed around with it until mine is working again. So don't oh, throw well, it away. I'm have to go just... shake mine up because it, starts, it stopped walking. I was like, oh, there it went. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. And actually, you know what? Now that I'm looking at this list, I think we've skipped ahead for making the Cookie Monster do these things and the dog do these things to the next level of play. But that comes quickly after the child is using putting on a hat or pretending to drink from the baby's bottle or the sippy cup or pretending to eat with a spoon, those kinds of things, then it's easy to transition that and bump him up to that next cognitive level, having him perform those kinds of actions on uh, the doll or the cookie monster or the animal or whatever you're going to use. That's actually the next level. We skipped ahead, but that's how it happens in real life, too. You see him do it in one context, and then you move them along so that they're ready <laughs> to do it in the next context, too. Okay, so first next, it was like they use objects functionally on themselves. On Is themselves. That? But don't you see that in your really lower-functioning kids? They don't really yeah. get that I'm going to put the hat on the baby dog yet or that even sometimes that I'm putting the hat on Mr. Potato Head, they want to put it on themselves first. Right. And that's a start. That's a start. They have to know how to use it. Um first on themselves, and then sometimes when they're doing that, if I think, okay, they're kind of fixated on that, I'm going to get them to put it on me or give me the drink or that kind of thing. And we talked about, I think, last week, even when a kid learns that he can, you know, shove the sippy cup in mommy's face and she's going to pretend to drink, then that's made it a little more social. That's bumped that play up a little bit so it's a little... A level above it on the if you're looking at a kid cognitively that he could use that object with another person or another object, um, you know, like the doll or whatever. That would be the next little thing you would look at. But the first one would be that he would pretend to do it himself, and that happens. We I know we've talked about this in the last few weeks where you're gonna you have your cell phone just sitting there and the kid grabs it and pretends like he's gonna talk on the phone. Right. That would be at this level. Okay, the next step, and I remember the first time we did the show, we really argued, (laughs) that not with each other, but we argued with this writer, whoever, and again, I can't remember who the source is. I got this, I took this from a presentation from an online uh, friend of mine or acquaintance, Patty Hamaguchi, who's a speech pathologist in California who uses lots of my stuff when she teaches conferences uh, with especially with parents, she uses my DVDs as, um, she uses it in her her practice and then she'll show clips from my DVDs in her conference to illustrate her point. And so I pulled this, I'm pretty sure I pulled this information from her presentation, but I don't know who the author is. I don't think it's her. But here's my point. (laughs) The next phase, they say, is building a tower. And it says at this 
play step, the child combines items which are intended to go together in, a, in an appropriate manner based on their nature, such as stacking nesting cups, stringing beads together, or connecting segments of a train track. And I think that both of us felt, just based on our personal experience, that that kind of building and putting things together probably precedes the whole using those objects functionally that we just talked about. So I've started kind of thinking about all of this together, that if I'm looking at play in a kid who's developmentally just above that 12-month level, that all of those things would be, um, those kinds of play activities would be what I would look for, starting to stack the blocks to build those together, wanting to be interested in making the strings go together if you're going to do one of those large beading sets, knowing that the trains hook together or put the train tracks together, those kinds of things would come all along the same time as that the other kinds of um, activities that we've talked about. Do you remember us talking about that before? I do, yeah. I almost, if I really wanted to split hairs, I'd say I could see the stacking blocks earlier before right. and then the train track Train tracks, mm. yeah. That a little later, but, uh, you know, for most kids it's all pretty pretty quick. Yeah. But those would be the most basic kinds of play that you would start to get, again, in a kid who's developmentally 12 months, 15 months, 18 months cognitively. That's where we would begin. And if you think about it, lots of those toys that we use when we first start to work with kids fall in this category or either in the category that we talked about last week, those really early cause and effect toys, those early kinds of very simple put the ball in the toy that with the ramps and hit it with the hammer, those kinds of things are all um, play activities that would fit where a child is functioning cognitively. And I know we've talked about this, you know, it feels like it, Sometimes every week we say the same darn stuff. You have to meet them where they are and where a kid is cognitively and play-wise. These kinds of kids aren't going to be ready for you to break out something more difficult uh, because they're just not there yet. They're not ready for the Easy Bake Oven and Barbie's Dream House or all of those other more advanced things that moms and dads might or grandma might think that they're ready to play with. They're still really back here. And, Kate, I remember you saying last week that so many times parents will think, well, my kid just doesn't like this toy. He's bored when really it's that the toy is too hard. And I think that's such an important message for therapists to remember, too. Sometimes our less complex Toys are going to be better, especially at the beginning, when we're first starting to figure out where is this kid really functioning developmentally. Or in our case in Kentucky, we don't do those initial evaluations anymore. We just get a report on a kid. We don't get the paper report anymore. We're supposed to read it online and look <laughs> at where he is functioning, and then you have to know what kind of toys am I going to take in for this kid. You cannot go by his chronological age. You've got to look for where he is developmentally. So when we're seeing that we have those kids that may even be two, two and a half, closer to three, but the primary person has um, done his assessment and his skills are all coming in at the 12-month level, we know he's not going to be ready for more advanced kinds of play. So we have to make sure that we're looking and taking in toys that are easier to do, that are pretty simple, so that we'll know that we can have a better shot of getting him to participate. Right. 
And the good news is, or the good thing is that, particularly if it's a novel toy, and a lot of the things we take are not everything. Certainly some families have what we take in, but hopefully not too much of it. Anyway, even if the kid is higher, for the most part, they're going to show a pretty active interest in those toys because they're pretty engaging toys. Now, we right. may realize pretty quickly, mm, he's beyond that. Right. That might be the one and only time that he sees a particular toy, but at least, you know, we've got his attention and he's engaged and he's interested and he wants to play, so that's right. not a bad session in and of itself. Yeah, and there are some people who take that to, who kind of abuse that philosophy and they might try to take in stacking rings and a set of wooden blocks and um give me another boring toy cake. <laughs> you know, things that look more like baby toys for and then they get there and they haven't done a really good job of, of preparing for that session and they they realize quite quickly or I hope they do that, oh, my goodness, the kid is beyond that. So, so you can't always start out with your simplest things. I mean, you really have to know where the kid is functioning to decide. Do you even use one of those stacking things? I no. That's why I say boring. And yeah. wooden blocks. I only no. have blocks. Yeah, I have the Tupperware blocks that we talk about all the time that are from the 70s that open, that you can only get them probably on eBay now. I don't even think Tupperware. I think they Tupperware is still in anymore. business. Oh, aren't yeah. they? I didn't know that. Huh. I mean, I think they're still in business, aren't they? Oh, I thought they were, yeah. But they quit yeah. making. They made the blocks when I started 13 years ago because I bought my original set new. So, And it, I don't think it was too long after that that they quit making the blocks, which was a mistake because they are cool blocks. They are, and you can get them on eBay still because I remember, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think just in our real telephone conversations that are not aired on the podcast, with that I found that them on pretty much eBay. The same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I found a set of those on eBay, and I was going to buy them, and then they got too expensive because I thought, well, in case my original set ever breaks, but they, they're really sturdy and reliable. And it, uh, what did you say a second ago about something indestructible? Yes. You really can't tear it up. Those are the best-made blocks that were ever made. Actually, (laughs) I've picked up some because, you know, I like to go to second-hand places and look for toys generally, and I've picked up some for next to nothing, a couple bucks for a big bag of them before. And I I just don't even – I've used a few of them, but, again, oh, I'll have them for when mine break, but they never break. You're going to retire before that happens. Yes, I think my grandkids (laughs) will get those. So that's okay, but – um, but yeah, they're so they're cool mm-hmm. because they open. You can and you can't put huge things in there, but you can put um, little plastic animals in there. Those little bouncy balls. I almost always when I'm using those, have one of those because the kids love those balls. Right, little um, super ball things. I have little cars and me too. Variety of animals. Um, Whatever. Oh, yeah, mostly animals and cars, I'd say, and the balls. Yeah. I'll Many different and, varieties of balls. <laughs> yeah, and I tell you, even for my kids when I used to do more feeding before I decided, okay, I'm just going to really specialize and do language, I would wash those and I would do it at the house. I remember several kids, even when we were still both working in southern Indiana, that I had some really picky eaters, and when I wanted them to try a new food, I washed those blocks and would put, especially if we were doing something crunchy and if we were trying to get a kid to do solids, 
or if it were just a sensory thing that he refused lots of, and or I'm thinking about this one little girl in particular, I put little snack foods in there, and that was a big hit because it was pretty novel, and it wasn't mm-hmm. the pressure of sitting and eating at the table. We did it in our regular play space at, you know, just our regular little therapy routines, and that was really fun. And, again, that worked because it was... It was new. It was exciting. It was out of the routine. It wasn't the pressure of sitting, you know, at the chair. And this is a little girl who had a pretty severe history of mom almost force-feeding her. And so she didn't always like to try um, new, even new junk foods. It was hard for her to do. So putting those cookies and crackers and whatever else I used, I remember that's, I don't normally put foods in those little blocks, but, boy, that's a more creative way if if you have a kid who might fall in that situation and who might benefit from that. That's a little journey. I remember doing me. it years ago. Yeah, you know what I do have yeah. in there that is, um has been fun? I call them poppers. I, you know, you know what they are from your kids, Laura. They're like a, like a super ball cut in half, and you invert it, and it, you put it on the hard surface, and it pops. Yeah, I've seen those, like birthday party favors. Yeah. My boys used to get those when they were younger. Right, yeah. when they would go to McGaddy Land or whatever and they yeah. have little yeah. favors. I have a number of those in there, and those are always a hit because there's action involved. And, you know, when they find them, then we put them down and pop them. So. That's cute. You'll have to save me one of those. I haven't had one of those in a long time. They're cool. They're <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put that on the list, too. Let's see. I've got to go to Ben Franklin and get a hat and go to Mr. Gaddy's, Gaddy Land, to get, get a, a popper. popper. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but any little thing like that that would fit in there, those are fun. But our our point, and we've gotten kind of off track, is we don't really use a lot of um, toys that aren't fun. And so when I was saying that sometimes therapists get stuck when they're almost too simple, um, they're they're just using the wrong toys, so you wouldn't really want to do that. I don't have a set yeah, of stacking. Same basic basic stuff, and sometimes even with kids who are way beyond that, right, right, and it's the same stuff week after week. And moms will say she's bored with all her toys, and like wow. right. And I gave the example in when I was writing Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and I gave the example because another mom had told me this about a therapist that was seeing a little boy that I was seeing, and she was that kind of therapist. She brought maybe a book and one puzzle that they had done and stacking rings and, you know, again, like little wooden blocks for weeks on end. And her little boy would leave that therapist and go into his big, cool uh, the ring with the train table, with the tunnels and the, the the you know the lights that came on and the the mountain that the train went in. And, you know, you would think, okay, take a hint. You got to get some better toys here. He, and that's why knowing where a kid is developmentally is the kicker because this kid was just a late talker and comprehension-wise and cognitively, he wasn't quite where he should have been for his chronological age, but he was a lot closer than those baby toys. And if he could Mm -hmm. have told that lady, he would have said, you know, this is boring. 
I'm not going to play with you until you bring some better toys. <laughs> right. I'm going to go in here with something that's more on my level, lady. You stay here and play with the baby toys. Be right back. Or not be right back, usually. So you, uh-huh. you can't take the whole be simple thing too far. You've got to really look at where the kid is functioning developmentally. And I mean, that would be should be your mantra anyway for everything. All right. So that, those were the, that was the first basic play, that first level. Now, this next level... And we've already talked about a lot of these things, are what you do with some of the things that you introduced in the first section, and it's just that next bump up. Like the child would, instead of using the spoon to feed himself uh, when you're playing uh, with dishes, he would feed the doll or the figure or that next thing. So, again, instead of putting the hat on himself when he saw it, he would know to put it on the object that you're using. So, again, it's taking the items that we've done in that first level and bumping it on up. The next phase in this would be things that go together. It would be at this level of play, the child puts two different items together in the way that they're typically combined, such as placing a pillow on a bed or putting candles on a birthday cake. I always think about this. Um, it's so interesting to me when I'm playing with a farm set with the kids, and the kids see that I'll put the farmer in the tractor and they immediately take the farmer out because they just want to drive the tractor without the person. Have you noticed mm-hmm. kids do that? A, a lot of kids do that. Yeah. They get kind of mad. Like, like, they get mad. Yeah, uh-huh. or the trailer. They might let you hook the trailer on, but when you start putting something in the trailer, they do not want the, anything in the trailer. They just want to drive the tractor alone or just want to drive the tractor with the trailer and not have the person or animal in there. And a lot of times they'll let you, if they won't let you put the farmer in, they'll let you put an animal in the trailer. And then I always say, he can't go yet. He needs the daddy. Where's the daddy? Let's call the daddy. But some kids are really adamant about not having that person or that extra thing with their vehicle. And then you play with them for a little while, over several weeks or months, and all of a sudden one day they let you do it. And I always think, aha, He's matured cognitively. <laughs> or either I've worn him down. Yeah, I've worn him out. <laughs> I wonder what that is. Why there? I, I mean, I've had I quite think a it's few this boys. Play thing. They what? I think, I think it's this play thing. I mean, are those usually kids? I mean, if you really start looking at those kids, they really don't use a lot of things together. I think it's that. Do you think it's just that they want to drive it by themselves? Sometimes I, well, I have a couple that really are sticky. I had one, you know, I discharged him, oh, eight or nine months ago, and he was he was very apraxic. And for him, he, he lived out in the country. He literally had a four-wheeler I remember thing. you talking about that yeah. little boy. And yeah. I think for him, it was like, if you think that little plastic thing and if if he had a vehicle that had a wheel, he would really try and steer it. So yeah, I he wanted to him, do it. It was an independent, you know. There's going to yeah. be no plastic man driving his tractor. It was his yeah. thing. But for other kids, it may be that they just don't get it cognitively. That's what I think it is. And then if I tra- if I have a kid like that, then I'm continuously trying to get him to drive the tractor to the barn or do something. I think, okay, if you're not going to let the farmer be in the tractor, you still need to use this tractor in a way other than just driving it randomly around and doing your little tractor sound. We've got to make it the tractor go and dump something or go and 
bump open the barn door, or sometimes with kids who are really kind of locked into that and never want to use two toys together, I'll try to drive the tractor on the barn or just do something where they're starting to think about, hey, I can use these two objects together. But right. a lot of times it, it, they really are, do seem a little locked into their routines, especially with cars and trucks and going going into their little um, just their little routines, how they're going to drive it or do whatever sound they do if there's a sound there and don't really want to bump it up and play um, using an object with it. So that's, that's how I try to think about it is I'm going to have them – do something with it. If you're not going to put the farmer in there, boy, we have to figure out another way to still bump you on up cognitively and, and get something going with that tractor other than you just holding it in your hand and driving it driving it around by yourself. Right. And sometimes you see kids who have some spectrumy tendencies who can be really rigid about that sort of thing. You know, like, no, nope, right. this is what I do. I roll it, I watch the wheels, and I want it to go. And when you try and interrupt that pattern at all, you know, it can be yeah. um, tenuous at best. They can get very <laughs> upset about, but I do. I don't let them do it too much. It's like, mm-mm. <laughs> no, I know. And, I'll, and if that doesn't work, what usually will work is if you line something up, like, or stack a tower of blocks, they nearly always will knock something down. Right. Um if you're if you really have a kid that's locked into that. And then I'll think, okay, if he... If he'll knock something down, then maybe he'll, you know, and just any kind of crazy thing that you can think of, then I'll think, well, maybe he'll drive it under the couch and then make it come back out. Or maybe he'll do anything, and I'll think, how can I'm, you know, just going to sit there and rack my brain and think what would be something that's just a little more difficult for him to do that I could get him to expand his play in this way. So you look at it from there. Um, When kids don't want to... um, use a toy like that, like we were talking about before, like if they're fixated on Thomas, I might use Thomas to eat the pretend food to get them to want to play with that sort of thing. You know, you can even pretend that Thomas is going to go to bed or, you know, play night-night, however you want to play. Using, you know, again, you're expanding the way that he's going to use that train, you're introducing new toys, and more importantly, you're introducing kind of that next little cognitive level, which would be to use two items together. So if you have a kid that's stuck on one thing, um, I, you don't, sometimes you're unsuccessful if you try to make him put it up. You can right. just use that to introduce something new. And I'm sure you've done that before. Do you have a better example of how to talk about that or explain what we're talking about than the one I just gave? It usually happens with trained kids or a kid that might be super attached to, say, one little action figure, and they are right. so... Well, okay, here would be, I guess, an example for those, oh, I just want to roll it back and forth kids, whether it be a car or a tractor or whatever, train, or a lot of times what I do with them is introduce something more novel, like I grab the book that nobody cares about and I put it on the side of the couch and right. I make a slide or I make a ramp for the tractor and I take it and I put it up there and I'm making the sounds and doing all the sound effects with it and something like that that's still yeah. still involving their their fixation, but you're doing something more novel and including another something with it that will get them right. because they're like, yeah, oh, I never thought of that, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great like, idea, Kate. Yeah. Yes. 
You can yeah, see that all wheels turning like, ooh, yeah. yeah. Hmm. And you might get them to do it in that way. I've even had kids that, you know, that, again, this might be a kid that I'm really fighting to make that early connection with, and you were talking about that earlier, how you might use Cookie Monster there. I've let kids use their little car or figure or Thomas or whatever to hit the balloons or to pop bubbles or as a way to transition to that next activity. Sometimes then you can stick that little object in your pocket after they've gotten after they've transitioned to that new activity, but sometimes you do just have to let them hold the thing the whole time, especially those first few sessions when you're just getting to know them. And But some therapists make that mistake and want to try to take it away or put it away too soon, and then you spend the rest of the session fighting a meltdown. And I don't really do too much of that anymore. If I think there's a chance they're going to melt down, I just put on my thinking cap and think how the world can I get him to use this in a different way so that we don't, I don't spend, you know, the next 40 minutes trying to cajole him out of this horrible funk or fit or whatever And sometimes there is just no beating that. And the other thing, what I do is, and Laura, I know you do too, I guess I'm just repeating what you said, but um, if you let him hold on to it, if you spend your time and your energy thinking about what can I do that trumps that, what you yeah. Same thing that's got his interest, maybe not the same tractor, but right. if he's really interested in watching the wheels or he's really interested in driving it or he's really interested, whatever it is, that if you can kind of find what hooked him in the first place mm-hmm. and go to something else that has the same basic hook, a lot yep. of times they find themselves, you know, then, you know, you're just distracting them onto something else, but instead of having a total meltdown and a wasted session for everybody... Nine times out of ten, if you can just put your thinking cap on for two seconds and go to the next, or even if it isn't exactly on the same, uh, you know, it's not a rolling toy, it's not a tractor. The same sensory property, yeah. Right. You know, what is it? Mm -hmm. If he's fixated on the wheels going around, then maybe your spiral track with the cars or maybe your ball toy that has the ramps and they can watch it go down or right. whatever. Um, Any maybe kind of visual flying movement. would do it. Yeah. So if yeah. you go with, okay, this has got him visually, then, you know, up the ante on him and, and whip out something that's just the same same hook, different different um, vehicle, so to speak. Yeah. Um, nine times out of ten, they're like, well, I'd like to be mad, but that's pretty cool. You know? That's kind of fun. Yeah, and doing the whole, oh, he's got to learn that he has to move on and that he has to transition without having a fit, boy, you could spend a good sometimes year working with a kid on that when really you should use more the redirection distraction where you're going to show him the next thing. That almost always works rather than sit up, come on, quit being mad, you're pitching a fit, you know, those kinds of uh, behavioral redirections. I almost always, when kids are having a fit with transition like that, or I, even before we get to the fit, I think, boy, I better have this next thing out and ready, and that's going to help him transition. And we can still do our little cleanup routine where he's still helping me put it away, but, boy, we are moving right on to this next thing before he can get too mad because I don't want to spend any part of my time there purposefully derailing what what I'm there to do, which is have him interact with me. And all that behavioral stuff really comes later. And with those kids that are hard to transition, I have one little boy like that right now. 
um, I just I just show him what comes next because he pretty much would fall apart uh, after every stinking toy. And it's not that he lo- I mean, he does love everything we do, and I have gotten really good at picking winners and knowing what kids like based on their their behaviors and their preferences in previous sessions. But a lot of times, it's just that he you know his core issue is he doesn't know how to transition, and so you figure that out and think how can we redirect this um, and that's going to help you be more successful than trying to behaviorally teach him not to have a fit because I'm not sure that's going to happen on my watch. I don't know if he's right. going to get there by November when he turns three. Right. So I don't spend time trying to do that a lot. I did earlier in my career. I would try to you know, think about things like that. Now I just have figured out the quickest way to move on, and, boy, that's what we do. Well, and sometimes you hear um, that with other therapists, He's miserable. He's throwing fits. He's getting mm-hmm. mad. He's not yeah. mean your child specifically, but with certain well, these yeah, kids who are. Well, yeah, that would be pretty are, much what's happening. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> happening. Well, there you go. And it's because they've, they're adopting a totally different approach. And the thing right. that bothers me about that is I, I, I always think, yeah, he's learning. He's learning to hate learning. He's ha- learning right. to hate therapy. He's learning to, right. and it's like, well, what good is served by that? You know, What I, good is that? And developmentally, he's not going to be there. I mean, he really, if that's not going to happen by the time he turns three. I don't think, you know, he's um, likely on the spectrum, kind of working through that whole diagnosis. I think this is going to be an issue for a long time. I talked to mom and dad about, okay, let's let's just distract him. Let's just redirect him to the next thing. We're not going to fight this battle here. Mm-hmm. And on days when he really, if he's sleepy when I get there or if he's not had lunch, boy, I really don't uh, push his buttons on those days. I move on as fast as I can because then I know he's more likely to fall apart with those transitions. And so you just figure out how to work around that. And I think I want my time there to be working on language, not all the other behavioral stuff. Um, and not that we don't work on that. We do, but I just think you can spend your my, – my best bang for my buck is going to be teaching him how to understand and use words, not um, Well, and I also think really that minutes. even from, an, from a theoretical standpoint, Laura, that if you're using a toy to um, distract him and to let him know this is what we're going to do next, that's a much more "quote unquote" therapeutic approach than. Yeah. Well, I'm going to clean this up. You're going to help me, and if you throw a fit, then by gum, that you're just going to throw your fit. Yeah. I don't know really that that is teaching them all that much, you know. Other, other than, than like what said, you said, that to I hate therapy yeah. and to hate learning yeah. and all yeah. these negative things. I think that and if you implement that approach and you're teaching him that. Yes, you're you're cleaning up one thing, but you're moving on to something else. And, you and you're said, sad, but you're going to get over it right. because and he may be a little upset, thing. but he's not melting down. He's not falling right. apart. He's right. just kind of looking like, hey, what are you doing? But you're showing him it's okay. We're doing the next thing, right. and you're still going to be happy. That's and much for where more. he, yeah, yeah, and I know what you're saying, yeah, I know what you're saying, and I, I mean, I totally believe that too. And for where he is developmentally. At about 18 months, you wouldn't really take a kid who's a real toddler at that developmental level. You know, but then when you look at my little friend who is a big old boy, <laughs> huge, nice. you know, if you just looked at his appearance and you know that he's turning three in November, you know, and because we work with babies and toddlers, a lot of early interventionists really 
think about two-and-a-half-year-olds as big boys and have kind of bumped those expectations up because, you know, you may have seen a twelve, a real live 12-month-old the session before the session after, and we tend to treat our older twos as bigger kids, but they're still really babies and the whole and especially for where he's functioning developmentally he redirection right, is he all really he can he do. Truly, yes he is a baby i mean 18 yeah. months like you said you yeah. wouldn't have those expectations and really yeah, that's so. what the way everybody needs to think of him which is hard exactly. to do but that's the truth uh-huh it's hard to do when he's big enough to knock me down if i'm not watching when he's running to me yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, yeah yeah, three-year-olds yeah, are pretty he, big, aren't they? He, yeah, and he, his both of his parents are tall. You know, mm-hmm. I'm five four; they tower over me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is not hard to do for a lot of people. But <laughs> he's a big, big boy, and so I think sometimes we confuse. Again, I always say candles on the birthday cake and looking at a kid's size instead of looking at where they're functioning developmentally. And it's, I'm not going to fight that fight with him. All right, so the next little phase in this uh, core play section or the next step would be then expanding that pretend play like you were going to feed a whole family. So this would be um, at this level the child plays with a series of related figures or dolls and causes the same everyday activity to happen to all the dolls or figures such as the child serving play food to a whole Family And this happens, it's really cool when a kid can play with more than one baby doll at the same time. Or if you have, if you're playing with your farm set and a kid will make all the animals come over to the trough and eat instead of one animal at a time. And it's really cool when that starts to happen because then they truly have mastered using more than one object. And it's a whole little group. And I love it when a kid gets um, to that phase in play. I have one little girl that I'm seeing right now. Um, as soon as I open my baby doll bag, and she's obsessed with dolls right now, she starts screaming, more baby, more baby, more baby. And she means, I want every dang doll you have in that bag out right now. <laughs> because that's where she is play-wise, and she's learned that that's fun. And we're going to feed all of them, and we're going to brush all their hair. We're going to, you know, she likes lotion, and we talked about this last week in the Band-Aid. She wants to do it with all, you know, she can go through a whole darn box of little Band-Aids in one session if I would let her (laughs) because she wants to do all four dolls that I have in the baby bag. And that's pretty cool when when a kid gets to that point. And you know that cognitively she is way ahead of where she was when she just wanted to play with one baby at a time. Or a lot of times you'll see a kid, you'll try to introduce, like we talked about with the putting the farmer in the truck, you'll try to get them to move on to that, but they're not quite ready yet. And so you'll just know that you're going to keep introducing and keep trying and then when they catch up from a maturation standpoint, they're gonna they're gonna let you include that and not um, not be so focused kind of on a singular toy there. So those were the steps in that next uh, level of play there. So it's just we had the basic play at the beginning where you know we talked about the take apart, put together, put it in, put it on, where the kid pretends to do something with the objects, and then the whole early constructive stuff with build a tower, and then we had this next level that we just finished up where the kid starts to feed the doll or feed the object, uh, uses more things that go together, will allow that kind of play, and then finally where he expands that beyond just one object where there's a whole little set there. And so next week 
we'll finish up talking about what this person has called intermediate play, and that would be where things are more symbolic, where they really start to pretend that, say, the banana is the phone or um, they'll pretend that something is an airplane and make it fly, and that's where we start to see, again, more of the symbolic stuff come in. So I can't believe we didn't get through this whole thing today, but... Well, I don't know why I say that, because that rarely happens where we finish up a topic in one week. <laughs> That's because we like to blab on about our little specific things. Well, this one, well, that one, well, I do this. Oh, but wow. I think it's all relative, and I do think that when you have done this job for a while, or especially for our new therapist friends that are listening, or moms that are listening to get insight with their own um Late talking or language delayed toddler, it really helps to give those specific ideas. I mean, we really could read the list and be done in about five minutes, but what fun would that be? So I'm <laughs> glad that we're <laughs> that we're able to expound to give these real life um, examples. So next week we'll pick up and hopefully we'll finish uh, the stages of play where we will uh, bump it on up and start to talk about those intermediate play levels and um, how kids advance to that more symbolic play. And again, this would be where we're going to see kids where where if I see a kid doing this by three, these next things, I think, woohoo, he is on his way. Cognitively, he has really come together. Right. And sometimes so, we don't see them get there, but... Yeah, and we that's do. okay, too. Yeah. Well, Laura, for anybody who's listening, let me just say, hey, next week, when, next Sunday, if you're listening live... Call in. We take call-ins, and we haven't had a call-in person forever. So if you're still listening to this podcast, please call in. Yeah. And enjoy that. Whether you're we a mom would totally or enjoy it. a dad or a grandma or a therapist or whatever, we don't care what, as long as it's related to speech and language development, we'll, t- we'll field the call. That's the right, question. and we'll put aside our... T- our uh, agenda for the evening because goodness knows we do it on our own little rants all the time you know what i think happens too is a lot of people just from looking at the show statistics don't listen live most of our listeners happen and you know uh, we've even had friends tell us i've listened working out or i've well we're gonna have to you know carry out every 15 minutes say keep walking get running (laughs) (laughs) pick up the pace you're loafing we're gonna have to start telling them to move it Now we're exercise coaches, too. How about that? You know, that's ironic coming from me. That's for sure. Oh, me too. Yeah, but my point was I think a lot of listeners do this as a part of their routine. We've just become kind of their add-on to whatever their routine or their schedule is going to be. Working out and then some therapists saying that they do it in between kids driving, which is cute. I mean, that means both are very flattering, but... It's fun to think, you know, they could be driving to their next kid and thinking, oh, I'm going to take that toy. I'm going to try that. You know, I'm just kid. Yeah. 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 That's oh, pretty cool. My. But my, I was going to say, for those people, email me a question or or email me and then set it up. A lot of times our callers have been people that have emailed me and I've cajoled them into being on the show. And so, you know, we can set that up. If you think, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to have time this Sunday, to this next Sunday to call, that's okay. We can set you up for, you know, a month from now for a call. And I love having callers too. And I, I guess um, that was a good plug for you to do because we haven't really – Openly invited anyone to call in in a long time, so hopefully that'll well, result sure in somebody. Sunday nights are 
Seems like when we used to do it way back when on Thursday afternoons we had the most call-ins. That must have been a good. It was probably nap time. We did nap about time. two o'clock on a yeah. Thursday. The Sunday evening, I think people are busy and they wait and listen to it when they have time. So I think oh, so too. Wow. I know. And Thursdays, that's a conference day for me now. And I'm not speaking every Thursday, but that's why we switched from Thursdays. Remember, mm-hmm. because I started mm-hmm. that whole new travel schedule. So anyway. I like Sunday evenings, but I'm sure people don't want to hear us go on and on about scheduling. Boy, we could yeah. talk about that. For okay, <laughs> let's call it a night. We'll do it again next uh, Sunday. There you go. Okay, Thanks. thanks, Laura. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye.